I'm going to go ahead and read our scripture passage. You can find it on page 11 of your worship guide, or if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, it's Isaiah chapter 50. I invite you to please stand with me at this point in time. And I would also remind you that um, this is the word of God, every word of which proves true. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce which I sent her away with? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have, not set my fa- I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, of all of, the, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What misunderstandings do we have that make us think God is limited? Truthfully, we find many ways to limit God, but perhaps the most common comes in our pain. When we look to other resources because we doubt God can rescue. Our world is full of evidence that we limit God in our pain. Gadgets for entertainment and weighted blankets for anxiety are commonly purchased items on Amazon. While these are good, if they are the only things we apply to our pain, we are trusting in them. When I was a police chaplain, there was an undercover officer who told me at least one in five people regularly abuse substances. And in 2012 and other years, more people have died from suicide than car wrecks. We are surrounded by a world that is placing its hope in many other things to cure pain. But it won't work long term. Isaiah 50 makes that clear. If I had to summarize this passage in one sentence, I would say God and his servant Jesus are sufficient to save and sustain. 
God and his servant Jesus are sufficient to save and sustain. And we'll walk through this passage. We'll look at God's words in verses 1 through 3, the, sermons, the servant's description of himself in verses 4 through 9, and wrap up with what the servant and God have to say in verses 10 through 11. This is a vital message. If we place our hope in anything other than the triune Lord, we will be devoured. If you want the love of Jesus Christ rather than the hopelessness of the world, please continue to listen to God's word this morning. First, God is sufficient. This passage is written in legal language. Israel is accusing God of dismissing them and claiming God is weaker than their enemies' gods. In turn, God charges Israel. He puts Israel in their place and asks, Where are the divorce papers? Who is the thug who twisted my arm into sending you into captivity? The silence from God's prosecutors is evidence that the divorce was never started, and no one is stronger than God. So who is at fault for Israel's suffering and captivity? Well, put bluntly, sinful Israel is at fault. As one scholar explains, the issue is not whether God is at fault for their situation, It is how can iniquities and rebellions that they have committed be atoned for so they can return to him? So how can Israel stop limiting God and return to him? Well, God answers this question in two ways. First, he reminds Israel who he is, and he reminds them of his past rescues. Now, Sometimes uh, I think one of the best things God does in our life is that he reminds us of how small we are. And if I can be allowed a quick illustration, I remember when I was in the Army Reserves, I had a very short peer who really just loved to brag about anything about himself. And one of his favorite things that he liked to brag about was that he had such big shoulder muscles, nobody could choke him out or make him tap out in a wrestling match. Um, Now, he often, to try and prove this, would flex his shoulders and put his own hand to his throat and say, look at how big I am. You can't choke me out. Well, that was until a much larger one of my friends came and put him in his place. I had a friend who was 230 pounds, 6'3", and one of these days that my peer was boasting about how big his shoulder muscles were, my friend walked over, wrapped his fingers around his throat and said, nah, bro, you just have tiny hands. If you will, verses 2 through 3 are God's way of letting Israel know that they have tiny hands, of reminding them of how small they and their doubts are. God uses his power over nature to show Israel he can save and redeem. Not only that, but his power over nature has a background in redemption. The Lord is not just flexing out of his insecurities. He has no insecurities. Yahweh is reminding his people that he turned the Nile to blood and blackened the sky to rescue them from Egypt. If he saved his people at the Exodus, he will save them now. They just have to desire him. In these verses, a capable and loving triune God is promising to ransom his people. But to see how that ransom comes about, we will need to wait for verses 4 through 9. In the meantime, how do verses 1 through 3 apply to us? Well, first we need to ask ourselves, how are we like Israel? 
Do we limit God by saying he is too weak for our trials? Do we not desire the Lord? Would we rather have our classmates' acceptance than God's law? Do we blame God for poor parental or familial circumstances? Does the empty seat at the holiday meal make us wonder how powerful God really is? Is raising a family proving to be the hardest thing that you've ever done? Brothers and sisters, it's okay to say with the saints of old, how long, O Lord? But where we misstep is to accuse God of being fallible. And that unbelief in God's power will drag us further from the only one who can help us. A number of years ago, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember being so angry with God, I struggled to pray. But one of the things that I was graciously convicted of was that I was running from the only thing that could actually help my dad. Friends, I would just encourage you with whatever you are suffering with, don't give up on God. This passage says that he has not given up on you, and he promises that his aid and his help is all sufficient for the trials that we find ourselves in. We also need to remember what this passage reminds us of. God is a powerful redeemer. There will never be some sort of boss battle where the Almighty Lord is beat. No one can make him small or wrap their fingers around his throat. God has not abandoned us. And we can say that again, that God has not abandoned us. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He's not going to be caught napping while you're in pain. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His loving opinion of you, his child, is never going to change. While we may limit him, he is limitless. He is not limited by our sin and our trials. He is our Savior. We may benefit from being reminded of how small we are, but it's more important to remember how small our doubts are and how big our God is. Now, before we go on to verses 4 through 9, let's summarize what we just talked about. Israel accused God of abandoning them and being too weak to redeem them. God challenges them to prove their accusations, and they come up short. Yahweh reminds them that his power over nature shows that he is able to save and that he has rescued in the past. These lessons help us remember our place before God, recall his power, and rely on his redemption. God has not abandoned you, and that is most clearly seen in Christ who appears in our next section. Consequently, God is sufficient. Second, God and Jesus, his servant, are sufficient to save. There are, um, there are four times the name the Lord God shows up in this passage, and this is the only servant passage where this name is used. It's highly deliberate on Isaiah's part. The name emphasizes the sovereign Lord who is the saving God in all his absolute power. The four uses of the name Lord God also show us that Jesus is the servant and the kind of servant that he is. For starts, the repetition of the name Lord God lets us know that the servant is commissioned by God, and therefore he cannot fail in the task God has given him. Next, the expression, the tongue of those who are taught, means that the servant is God's disciple. 
taught implies persons who by intimate association with a master have learned what he knows. Now, remember what uh, Pastor Troy talked about in your Daniel series about how Daniel continued to pray and trust in God even when Darius had decreed that nobody should pray to anybody but him. Daniel was a person who lived quorum Deo before the face of God, and he knew that God was the owner of the world he lived in, not King Darius. That's a beautiful picture of what the servant is. He knows this is his father's world. And because he is one with his father, he doesn't fear or deviate from his ways and his teaching. Christ alone can say that he thought God's thoughts after him and lived them out. Jesus also took time to be taught God's word. And only Emmanuel can truly say, as he did in John eight twenty nine, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Also, we see more clearly that the, this servant is Jesus based on his mission. Verse 4 teaches us that the servant will speak timely or seasonable words to the weary. Now, the weary are those who are tired of trying to justify themselves. They are people who, like Agur in Proverbs 30, cry out, I am weary, O God. I am weary and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man, and I have not learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. When we live apart from God and by our own strength, we will exhaust, frustrate, and depress ourselves. Our Lord Jesus Christ spoke words that brought healing. He is the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. He alone brings comfort to us in both salvation and suffering. His words are as powerful today as when he first spoke them long ago. How is this servant received? This one who loved God perfectly and brought healing. Those he ministers to try to shame him. In verse 6, flogging, or also known as scourging, plucking of the beard and spitting are all ancient ways that you embarrass someone. The word here for shame carries a sense of disgrace and public humiliation. And the same word appears in Ezekiel where God promises that his people will bear their shame. Again, the ways these words predict Christ are startling. Consider Matthew 27, 26 through 30. Having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers took Jesus, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed, and struck him on the head. Yet, these horrible things done to the king of glory were only an attempt to shame him. The way God intended to shame his people back in Ezekiel was for them to see how cruel they were to him when he restored and defended them. Please hear this. This is how God reconciles us. As our gospel passage assured this morning, this is how God ransomed us by putting 
the sin and the embarrassment and the shame we deserved on his own son. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts this. It wasn't the nails that held Christ on the cross. It was love. It's a loving God that proves to Israel he is not divorced or sold them. It's a loving God whose son is scourged and humiliated and spat on so that we do not have to bear the burden of sin and pain. What, we sh- what should be our shame is now our glory in Christ. God does not want you to stay in shame. He wants to be in right relationship with you. And he wants it so much Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. The servant's connection to God and his innocence are why he is so determined and confident. The legal language comes back in verses 8 through 9. Just like God in verses 1 through 3, the servant dares anyone to accuse him. The servant knows with God as his defender, accusations will not get anywhere near court. And dear friends, I hope you can already see the encouraging and beautiful application that we are heading towards here. What are you ashamed of? What skeletons do you want left in the closet? What public humiliation still haunts your memory? What sin do you believe condemns you? What does a wicked conscience try to guilt you into believing? If you can fill in these things that I'm inferring here, there are two truths I need you to know today. Number one, Jesus has felt profound shame. His earthly family thought that he was insane. He was publicly and repeatedly tried to be tricked by the the religious leaders of the day. And as we read in Matthew, he was publicly disrobed and tortured in front of hundreds of vile soldiers. Your Savior knows shame, and he knows the worst kind, undeserved shame. In fact, he's the only person who can say he's experienced undeserved shame. When you pray, he is your high priest who empathizes with your weakness. He will help you bear whatever your hurt is. And number two, and even better, um, there is nothing too great for Jesus to redeem. Our thoughts may abuse us when we think about how Um, Jesus has suffered so unjustly, but they should not lead us to despair. Christ's innocence is what makes him the only perfect substitute on our behalf. And so we should remember and reflect on the words of this familiar hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, no shame, no past experience can bid me thence depart. You who are loved by God, you do not need to be in shame anymore. You do not need to believe the lies of an evil conscience. Remember, your servant Savior loves you, and he welcomes you no matter your past or how you view yourself. If Jesus is not your Savior, you can have his love and acceptance today. And I can say this as a sinful man that God has redeemed. All you need to do is confess your rebellion to God that he already is aware of. 
um, that only in Christ can you be restored and that by the power of the Holy Spirit you will strive to live like God's servant. If you do this, you will never have anything to be ashamed of ever again. Now let's review before we move on to our last point. Isaiah uses the name Lord God to show us that Yahweh is sovereign and powerful. The use of Lord God also helps us see the servant is the Almighty's perfectly obedient, caring, and conquering servant. Only Jesus Christ can meet that description. Because Jesus is the servant, there is nothing in all the world that can shame his children. Thus God and his servant are sufficient to save. Now verses 10 through 11 prove that God and his servant Jesus are sufficient to save and sustain. Verse 10 addresses those who reverence God, while verse 11 warns those who do not. Strikingly, in these two verses, the servant and God's voice are both interchangeable. Now why, if verse 10 is written to believers, does it describe them as walking in darkness? Well, the servant is being very honest with his followers here. He is te- warning them that they will face frustration, injustice, humiliation, and abuse. Our lives will not be identical to Christ, but he is our model, even in hard times. Verse 10 is a call for us to trust God in the darkness of suffering. In contrast, those who reject God are trying to conquer the darkness by fires of their own making. Interestingly, there's an idea here in the Hebrew of trying to tie a torch to one's body so that their hands are free for self-defense. And yes, that idea is as foolish as it sounds. The thing that those who are wandering in darkness are relying on will quickly be the thing that ruins them. As scholar John Oswald teaches, there is only one light in the darkness of human sin, the one kindled by God in and through his servant. To refuse that light and to embrace some other is to open oneself to a devouring flame. As we close today, I want you to remember Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus saved us from the devouring flame of our own wisdom. There will be challenges. We will certainly face pain. And that pain will make us want to limit God, want to deny that he is able to save. But Martin Luther put it best when he said, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Jesus is our hope in darkness, and that includes the darkness of grief and suffering. If Jesus is not your exclusive Savior, I urge you once again to repent before your own fire consumes you. If you love Jesus, this week we need to remember as a body, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to strive to recall who God is in this passage. Remember the salvation his servant has bought us with his own blood. Recognize the devouring flame he has rescued us from, and he will sustain us. In short, Remember the servant who came on Christmas so our lives could be defined by a limitless God and not suffering.